This week on Conversations of Inspiration, I'm speaking to the double Olympic champion, Colonel Dame Kelly Holmes. It was a truly emotional and highly inspirational interview, where on several occasions I had to just hold back the tears as I listened to Kelly recounting her journey from growing up in care homes to winning two gold medals at the 2004 Olympics. It was an extraordinary conversation, revealing the dramatic lows and mental health that precursed her dreams coming true. Kelly also discussed life after achieving those epic goals, how a focused passion can fuel success, as well as some insights into her own winning mentality and how that can translate into business. This episode is a must-listen for anyone who has ever faced adversity. Kelly is a testament to overcoming the odds and the power of belief. Thank you, dear Kelly. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Wow. Colonel Dame double Olympic champion Kelly Holmes. This podcast is called Conversations of Inspiration. And I think you might just be the greatest epitome of inspiration I've had on this podcast. You're the first athlete, the first dame, the first colonel, the first Olympic medal winner we've had on this podcast. So it is a real (laughs) special one. So thank you, Kelly. Uh, Thank Thank you you. so much. And thank you so much for coming to the Congregation of Inspiration. I didn't get a chance to give you a cuddle on the day, but you were loving. I was just looking at your Insta stories afterwards. Did you have a good time? Yeah, I really did. It was like sort of, I came a little bit later, but to the end of a day that had been quite manic and, you know, I hadn't really thought of myself. And then I came there and it was just like this waft of kind of, energy and inspiration from the t- speakers and the singers and oh. I was just like wow I wish I'd been here all day I was like so <laughs> revved up I was like right where do I start what's my next you know mission in life it was so good oh, so well done thank you thank you um I'd love to start with your story what life was like growing up as you had a much more difficult start than most could you tell us your story well I was born into a mixed race family. My mum was a teenager when she had me, 17, and we grew up in Kent. (laughs) Um, And whilst that never affected me, I mean, I realise now how strong she was. She um, basically had me with a Jamaican man. That was kind of like a big issue back in the 70s, let's say. But my life, as I remember it, was more around trying to find my identity sort of my accept 
acceptance, understanding who I was early on. Uh, I grew up with my uh, stepdads, my brothers who were white. I went to uh, white school. That's all I know. I mean, I don't know any different. And back then, I kind of think, did, I wasn't sure whether I actually knew who I was or didn't, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, it was only really that kind of understanding that actually... Uh, I changed around the kind of thought process around standing out as being different into, well, maybe that's unique, then that's, you know, you're different for a reason as opposed to it being something that was... Was a negative. A negative, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I grew up in a council estate, um, like lots of people do. We didn't have much money, so I'd very early on in life always knew that if I was going to earn money go out there and get yourself so I'd wash cars I would clean windows I would shop for the old people across the road that's where my charity sort of mindset came in and you know I'd go up and they'd throw me 50 peas or chocolates hence my chocoholic status now um <laughs> you know <laughs> some things are great but um <laughs> maybe not that so I kind of just learned to do what I needed to do to get by in life, I suppose. You said you were a black girl in a sea of white. It was actually not the norm, right, in, in where you grew up in terms of the mixed race family and as such a young mum. And it's, it's quite incredible because now we don't, you know, it's not the same, is it? But it felt like from a young age that you were already overcoming, you know, these steps and these hurdles in your life. Yeah, I think so because um, I grew up in... Hildenborough, Kent, so a village uh, is where my mum was from, where my, my family were all from, as in my, my mum's side. I didn't know, uh, I think my, well, I called him sperm donor, sorry, but um, <laughs> he left yeah. before I was one, so he had no impact in my life whatsoever. So my mum had to put me in a children's home because she was told by my granddad then that until she could look after herself, she couldn't look after me. So I remember being in there. There was, you know, different scenarios that happened there, but it was more the fact of uh, growing up then with my stepdad who was white and not knowing that he wasn't my dad at first. I had no, right. I had no idea he wasn't my dad. And then I had a brother who was white. And then, you know, as you're a kid at school, they start pointing out the differences. I was like, oh, I'm oh, brown. Yeah. Oh, yeah different but I didn't really think anything of it to be honest um but then you know uh it was more that whole thing of okay that's what life is and I just grew up in that understanding because I didn't feel different to be honest because mm -hmm. when you are just that person I don't know any different you know I yeah. didn't grow up with yeah. the Jamaican side of my family so I had no idea what that side of life is I only know and it sounds you know I think when some people talk about it from a racial point of view it is different. I only know what, let's say, white people talk about doing, yeah, you know, yeah. village life. Yeah, you I only, only know, know that. don't you, what you know. Yeah. And, and, and actually, like most entrepreneurs um, I've had on this podcast, you didn't have the best time at school. You right. were dyslexic, but you weren't diagnosed straight away then. And studying sport wasn't really an option back then. Mm. Yet your diamond, like when we spoke about the congregation, your diamond was there. You were an incredible athlete. Were you the fastest in the playground? And it made me laugh even thinking about this because I seriously wouldn't have liked to be up against you in the egg and spoon race. <laughs> oh, well, yes. Yeah. So the egg and spoon race at primary school set me apart from everyone else because <laughs> I was on a mission. However, secondary school uh, definitely was where I started to find my identity because I wasn't academic at school whatsoever. I mean, you know, you look at life now and how mm. children are, are taught and they are actually taught in a way that... Um, 
you know, if you're a creative person or you're sporty or you're academic, they start to identify sort of where it's young progressed. people... So yeah. whereas, you know, there I was sitting in a classroom, I had no idea what people were talking. I just couldn't pick it up. I couldn't read very well. I didn't understand things. Mm. My, my parents didn't sit down mm. and do homework with me. They were out working for a living, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So when I went home and I go back to school and you've got the French teacher screaming at you in French because you're going... I'm, answer in French I'm like well I have no idea I'm outside the classroom I spent most of the time outside the classroom to be honest yeah. because you end up talking with your mates I only went to school for my yeah. friends to be yeah. honest because yeah. <laughs> but then yeah. I went to school because my one person at school that told me I could be good was my PE teacher and she mm. said Kelly you are so good at running I used to beat girls that were like two years older than me you know and she's going you have to get to an athletics club. And she called my mum and says, get her down to an athletics club. And it almost started then because suddenly I had a name. You know, people wanted to be in Kelly's team. You know, it was almost right. like it gave me, a, you found, I felt yeah. empowered by that. It's amazing because I, I call it sometimes the peacock feathers that kids mm. need. You need to find your one peacock feather moment. Could be maths, yes. it could be art, it could be, but then you start to ident have an identity, don't you? And so you found your identity. And did you always have dreams then of being an athlete? Or did you ever think you, at that point, because we'll go on to what happened, mm -hmm. but did you ever think you could pursue it as a career? Yeah, I think back. Then it wasn't like a career as such. It was like a fluffy cloud dream, you know, um, and I could just run, you know, six months after starting, I was at all England schools champion and it was just kind of like, wow. But then I watched the Olympic games when I was 14 and I watched Sebastian Coe win the 1500 meters and I got these goosebumps and I was like, oh, that's what I want to be. I wanted to be Olympic champion. And I remember going back into school after summer holidays, telling my best friends, Kerry, Lara and Kim, I am going to be Olympic champion. And they turned around and said, yes, you probably are because it's the only bloody thing you're good at. <laughs> However, <laughs> little did I know. <laughs> it was true. And they're still my best friends to this day. Oh. However, <laughs> uh, it was that moment of, wow, you know, I could be an Olympic champion. And that was my driver to feel mm. good about myself. You know, I started then having a routine where we didn't have a bus um, that went from my village to school. So I'd bike to school, I'd bike to training, I'd bike back. Uh, home and that was my thing I didn't go out with friends I didn't go to parties I just you was were, you you were already your vision yeah in, in a way yeah from such a young you know my son's mm. 14 you know it's it's you've got a lot of other things going on at 14 <laughs> yeah. haven't you you know not only your body and everything else but your friends and social groups but you were you were already focusing in and it's so interesting I'm I'm making it my mission in life to help find everyone's um, diamonds for them if they haven't found them themselves mm. and turn it into a career or a business. And often there's, um, from an early age, when you look back, that schooling um, doesn't accommodate um, for mm. that or even know at time to look for it. And even though it has progressed, it probably hasn't progressed as much as it should progress. Mm -hmm. Your diamond is what you're passionate about, what made you stand out in the playground, what made you happy, what made you feel um, that you were great at. And you were this incredible runner. Yet in the meantime, you were also this mini entrepreneur. You, as you said, you were washing cars, running the sweet shop, had a paper round until you finally got to join the army at 17 as a heavy goods vehicle driver. Is that right? Yes. yes. I mean, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> and why did you decide to join the army? So you left school with little qualifications. Yeah. Is that right? None. Yeah. None. None. So why, why the army? 
Why did you think that was your path? Mm, so again, when I was 14, so 14 sort of was like that. Yeah, I need to watch out for Harry. Oh yeah. my goodness, <laughs> what's he thinking? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that bright light kind of came onto me. And uh, we had careers officers come to our school. They had the Army, Navy and Air Force. And... Uh, the Air Force didn't show flying planes. They showed the administration side. I was like, no. They showed Navy ships at sea. I couldn't swim when I was 14. I was like, no. And they showed the soldiers screaming and shouting at all these other soldiers sort of going underneath the scramble net over the 12-foot wall, swinging on the ropes. I was like, yes, I want to be that. I wanted to be the one sort of, you know, screaming and shouting and the one getting down dirty. And I actually wanted to be a physical training instructor because I was so into sport and you know, kind of pushing myself to my limits. So, but I couldn't get in because I didn't have the exam results. The entrance for the physical training course was closed. So I had three options. One was to be a chef, one was to be an administrator, and one was to be a heavy goods vehicle driver. And I was so desperate to get in, I went. I mean, my first actual job, which a lot of people don't know, I was a nursing assistant age 16 when I left school for people with mental health and physical disabilities. And um, that, again, was more my charity bit. I always cared for people. I always wanted to help people. I think I had that instilled in me from a very young age just because... Good soul. Yeah, like I just felt like if I could help someone then it made, feel, it made them be better at whatever and then make me feel good. But the army was my dream and so I eventually joined just before my 18th birthday. I actually had a scholarship for Minnesota University but I was thinking, well, how am I going to go? I didn't even know the word university, you know. It's like, <laughs> they gave me this, all these forms to fill out and I was like, no. And then, and then the intake for the army came in. I was like, I'm going in the army. So I remember joining and uh, it was a group of 30 girls. I got off at a train station in Guildford. We got on this bus. Next minute minute we're in this military camp rules regulations discipline you know I'm thinking oh shit what have I done I know and then um yeah just my life sort of went in that vein it was uh yeah and you were in the army for a decade yeah. you were there for 10 years having this incredible career receiving an MBE for your service did you always have the dream of being an athlete still though in that time yeah, I, I ended up being a junior international athlete. So the year that I went into the army is also one of my last international athletics meeting. I'd become mini youth Olympic gold medalist in the 800 meters, but I wanted a career. I wanted to feel like, because I had no exam results, that actually mm -hmm. I could be something fall, or do or something. Or fall back on. You, yeah, you, know, you wanted you know, that stability. I'll have a job, have yeah. a livelihood. Yeah actually make something yeah. of my life because yeah. I had no idea who I was I really didn't and so going in gave me that stability in a way yeah I was kind of like over that time I sort of found my feet you know kind of who I was and who I could be I suppose being in the army yet in 1992, I watched the Barcelona Olympic Games again. This time, I was in my barrack room. So instead of being at home, I was in my <laughs> barrack room. It's just like one bed and some wardrobes. And I watched the Olympic Games. I was like, oh, my God, there's a girl in there, 3,000 metres. Her name was Lisa York. I used to run against her. used to beat her when I was a junior. She's at these Olympic Games. And I'm like, oh, my God. And it reignited, like, the fire in my belly. That you had when you yeah, were 14. Yeah, it really did. And it was like... I want to be Olympic champion as well. So I'd achieved one dream. I'd transferred then to become a physical training instructor, which was my dream since 14. So when I was 21, so I was living the dream that I always wanted work-wise. 
But then that passion of where actually my ability was, which was running, you know, that was really where I was, what I was good at. Do you think that the army and the discipline and the, the structure and that, you know, you weren't there for a year, you were there for 10 years. Yeah helped give you some tools that you would later take on? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think, you know, as you know, when life is there, you know, it's never going to be that easy. And I was fearful of kind of, again, maybe losing my identity because I knew who I was in the military. You know, I'd been promoted to sergeant. I was kind of, I knew who I was and what was expected of me. And leaving, I was going into the unknown because there was no guarantees that I would achieve my dream at all. I had, didn't have a roof over my head anymore. didn't have a, a regular income coming yeah. in. I just had to hope that I'd be good enough to get some sponsorship or something. So it's a big leap of faith, but also one that in sport at an age, you know that, you know, it's never going to last forever. And I think I was very lucky as a person to always know to go for trying to be your best you can be at that time. And so sort of leaving was that, you know, in the military, it's institutionalised almost because you are disciplined. You mm -hmm. know, you kind of have a good camaraderie base. You know how to push yourself against others. You know what's expected. And so I took a lot of that into my athletics career about the discipline to succeed, about commitment, you know, drive, discipline, determination, all those things that values in, from the army instill in you, I had to take into my athletics career. Because if I didn't commit, I'd never be an international yeah. athlete. Yeah. But I was already, I'd actually, I actually became an international athlete whilst I was in the army because I used to use my leave to go away and compete. And people used to say, why did you use your leave? Didn't they just let you off? And I was like, no, because I'm never going to have someone tell me I'm not good enough at my job, that I'm only doing this because of my sport. So that almost like a little bit shot myself in the foot because I'd use my whole leave to go away and compete internationally. I'd go and win a medal. I'd come back, then I'm, umpiring around as much for the army you know it's like okay win two world championship medals the next thing I'm like at this round as much blowing a whistle I'm like seriously but it was a good grounding because it yeah. set me values it yes. set me about Your own values about myself and other people it set me those if I want to be good prove that you're good not expect people to show you you can be good and I think you need that in life anyway if you, you want to be good sometimes you have to prove it and not expect other people to tell you Good, yes, you know, for yourself. Yeah, definitely for yourself. So, so that moment that mm. you, so you jumped and you, as you said, began winning medals, but at the same time getting a lot of injuries. And I know you had to undergo, you know, many serious operations too. And I just cannot imagine how stressful that time of your life was because, you know, before preparing this interview, I hadn't really thought of when your body is your business. Mm -hmm. You know, that actually it is your body, your health is your biggest asset. You know, other people have businesses. It's the machinery or something like <laughs> yeah. that. And you were, you the, you're the machine <laughs> and you have to push it to an extreme process, you know, to risk of damage. And, and it must be quite a precarious position to be in. Did you ever have a backup plan or did you just know within that this was the path that you knew would lead to the, the Olympics? It was the hope, you know, you never know what's actually going to happen. But I think it was that, I think as I went through my career, it was finding those moments where, you know, when in life you forget to pat yourself on the back and then actually when the next hurdle comes, you kind of it can put you down and put you down. And what happened initially with my career was that I would win a medal I'd be like 
Oh my God, yeah, because I'd be looking at how hard it may have been to get there, you know. So I had my first major injury when I was 26. I used my leave to go away to my first Olympic Games. I flew over to a holding camp, Tallahassee. I felt a bruise on my leg, was told I had a stress fracture, got to go home. I was like, well, if I don't go home, then what, you know, oh, you risk breaking your leg completely and whatever. I said, I'll take the risk because I thought at 26, you know, Olympic cycles every four years. So you can plan a strategy like you're doing work four years, but that's not going to wait for you. Yeah. You know, you've got to be there at the time yeah. thing. And every year is a championship. So you have to be there and ready to go. So I thought, well, what if I never get to Olympic Games again? I don't want to live with if only. If only is like the worst feeling, I'd know. So I'd do it and take the consequences. So I ran and I ended up getting fourth, being pipped on the line in the final by fitness of my shirt, which is very thin, for those that can't see, um, at an Olympic Games when everyone told me, go home. And that initial blow was so like, you know, devastating to hear. And I was in pain. I was having injections into my leg. Psychologically, it was kind of like, oh no, I was so close, but yet so far. But then after that, I kind of thought, if I come forth at an Olympic Games with a stress fracture, I can bloody do this. You know, it's kind of like, that was my motivator. The the downfalls and the failure in my mind was actually my motivator to be better because I used them as a, well, if you can get to this. I think some people forget where they've come from. They only think of the actual failure rather than the journey up to that failure. And that moment in time. Look what I actually did. Yeah, Yeah, in that moment. So... As things went on, I left the army in 97 when I was 27 because I ended up going to a world championships, which I was favourite to win. As far as I can than anyone else in the world that year after breaking the British record that stood for 12 years, I went to these championships. I got this nigger in my Achilles tendon. I went and had some treatment. I was thinking, I'm still faster than anyone else in the world. I can't win gold. First race, first day of the championships, women's 1500 metres, after two laps, massive bang in my leg, completely ruptured my calf from one side to the other, my calf muscle and tore my Achilles. I hobbled down the track and my career at that point, they said, was over. I was never going to, that was such a bad tear what I had. And I was devastated. I got down. I didn't know what to do, whether to give up, to stop or whatever. And then I thought to myself, well, if I can pass five seconds faster than anyone else in the world, I can bloody do this. It was always like that. It was like the highs and lows, so extreme, but it was a driver as well as a, a down, you know? So I think, yeah, you, you know, back then you didn't have so much support, you know, it wasn't like mm-hmm. you have a physio on tap, you'd have to drive, mm-hmm. I'd have to drive an hour, hour and a half to go and get massage or something or right, yeah. didn't really know about nutrition as much. I was just doing what I felt was yeah. right. You yeah. know, my coach was as a coach from a club. He wasn't an international coach, no. yeah. just someone that knew me from years yeah. and we yeah. progressed. So, yeah, there was sort of a mind game that was positive in one thing, to have the highs, to stand on a rostrum, and then the lows of being injured and only people seeing that injury as a mechanical thing and dealing with the injury rather than ever asking you how you felt about the fact that you were down and you were alone. alone. And this is what I knew was to almost impact my life later on. Later on. And what's interesting using sort of looking at business and sports is, you know, I'm quite open with that my failures, you know, the times that I was on the floor humiliated by my failure because I had such imposter syndrome that I was addicted to succeeding were now on reflection the catalysts my moments maybe of genius 
was on the floor humiliated. It was that moment that that awful, the biggest pain that you experience, coupled with a realization that's almost changes your life, yes. you know. And so you experienced that, but you you went on and you did it. You won the bronze medal in 2000 Sydney Olympics at 30. But you had this burning ambition within you to fulfill your dreams. And you so you returned to the Olympics in Athens in 2004 when history was made. I actually feel like blubbing right now. I'm so, I'm so in awe of you, Kelly, no, no, honestly. No, no. that you did it. And please just, oh, I feel so emotional. Would you just do me the great honour of telling us the story leading up to the Games and that phenomenal moment? Mm. That shock in your eyes Mm -hmm. when you won that first gold medal must be engraved on the hearts of all of us Brits. You know, those moments were absolutely amazing. I think it's more the, the bit behind it that showed in my face as opposed to the actual winning and crossing the line you know because when I won the 800 meters it was a complete shock I mean I never thought I'd win the 800 meters my dream was always the 1500 but that kind of in a position seven years of last it was the only year in seven years I hadn't been injured but what people didn't understand behind the story was the real depths of despair you know and in 2003 the world championships I'm getting ready for age 33 I'd been in the army military for 10 10 years I've been an international athlete for 11 years yet I had the biggest breakdown of my life you know I I was in a holding camp and uh, basically I've got a niggle again I was getting ready for Paris World Championships I went into my hotel I went into the bathroom I looked in the mirror I hated everything about myself suddenly this big black cloud came over me I'd had this massive breakdown I looked in the mirror hated everything about myself wanted the floor to open I wanted to jump in it I wanted to hide but I saw some scissors on the side and I started to cut myself every day and be injured when you're wearing a crop top and shorts there's not that many places but hiding is what mental health is people hide because they don't know how to express themselves tell themselves or do whatever and I was at the depths of despair and the thing is, I was still getting ready for world champs. And that was the power of having a dream because it kept me almost live. Like half of you is dying and half of you is trying to live because you want to be the person you believe you have been fighting for all your life. So I ended up at those championships of being this mad moment of despair, winning a silver medal. And no one knew when it got put around my neck that that's what I was going through. And I suppose that realisation of that, how you can as a person, when things are going so wrong, still have a strong element of you. I think we underestimate how strong we are as people when it goes down and the fighters and the one that's successful, the ones that don't give up, they're like, no, I believe in this. You'll take all the shit because you believe in it. And it's the same in sport. So when in 2004, even though I hadn't told anyone about the emotional side because I didn't know, you didn't talk about mental health back then, I had no idea what a breakdown, depression, self-harming was, I just was doing it. I told my, fa- my not my family, my team, look, I need you to help me achieve this dream. I know I can do it. I've been so close yet so far. I fought through seven years of injuries yet I still had 11 medals, you know, 10 medals by then. I'm like, I can do this, but I need you. And sometimes you have to rely on other people around you and not think that you can do it all take the pluses from people and go, oh, actually, you're pretty good at your job. All right, I'll take that on. You know, you take it on. It's slightly different running around a trap maybe to business, but it's not in a way that actually you live the same purpose. And if you do your job well, you'll get that result and respect later on. It'll, you all come together with yeah. the best version. Yeah, and then 
you'll have that bit. Yeah. And I relate it now. I've come back to the Athens bit, but I relate it very much now about they all did their job well. It meant I kept injury-free and I didn't have an illness. I had glandular fever, tonsillitis. I had everything during my career. I fought through it, but I knew they were my downfall. Not my ability, not my focus, not my belief and my, uh, yeah, my God-given talent, let's say. It was the exterior things of pushing yourself to the extreme when you're down eating crap because it's like a comfort food and then realising actually the detrimental effect of being an international athlete that you've got to work harder to get back to the, you know, your form and your physique, you know. People don't, I know, right? You know, you're down like oh, stuff in your face thinking, oh, and then thinking, shit, I've got to get around. You know. It's not helping. No, exactly. It's how strong you're going to be, how powerful I feel. Oh, God, here we go cycle but it, it was part and parcel of it wasn't it um and then I realized that you know I used to say to people people say to me well what did your physio have in it I said I'll tell you what she had in it she was good in her own right but I pushed her to be brilliant we won two gold medals she yeah. now looks after eight other gold medalists she was a university physio she, she worked for Great Britain, but she wasn't, didn't have any one major. But being part of that team, she's now thriving. She's got her own business. She's got about 10 other physios working for her. Amazing. You know, my, my training partner, an international athlete in his own right, 1,500, 800-meter runner, Anthony Whiteman, never won a global medal at all. He was one of the best in Great Britain, but he used to faff around with the other best in Great Britain and never really believed he could be good. Gave up his year that year. Helped me. It meant he was had to be disciplined, focused, completely committed to what I did. We won the two gold medals. He succeeded me. He then went on to be number one in the world for man over 40, break the world record for a mile for men over 40 because he then got that lifted spirit, spirit of belief and self because he was part of a quality team. And so I think you have to not underestimate wow. that there the could power. be a driver or like a business, but if everyone comes, like, like can be how a you boss can feel, or a founder... But actually, I, I experience it every day yeah. in Holly & Co. That the people around me, mm. it's us, isn't yeah. it? It's us. And maybe you only see the one person who's the, the front person. Yeah. But it's just... It, it becomes us, but it becomes us when everybody else buy into that. And there yes, always the is vision. a leader. There always is a... Four person, a, yeah, a, yeah. Always there has to be. And there's yeah. no point in being yeah. jealous in that because you would be that person if you could. But yeah. if you're not, but you're part of the puzzle and the picture, yeah. then be proud and pride yourself in being the best version of the yourself. So I won two gold medals. Do you want <laughs> As you're listening to this episode, I'm so glad you found your way to conversations of inspiration, and I hope you've taken some wisdom from it. Keep listening. It gets even better. Every week, we explore the highest highs and the lowest of lows of some of the nation's favorite founders, creatives, and entrepreneurs as they share their stories with me. Having recorded over 130 episodes, there are so many incredible guests to choose from, every one of them sharing their experiences, advice, and my most anticipated part of each episode, a letter to their younger self. 
If you're not sure where to start, head to holly.co, where you can browse all our back catalogue by collection. There are buckets of podcasts you can choose from, such as Business as a Force for Good, to Female Founders, or perhaps hearing stories from those with dyslexia. Needless to say, this unique library has changed my life completely, and I'm positive it will have the same effect on you. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. So that moment in 2004, and I mean, your dreams had come true, your gut instinct, 14-year-old mm-hmm. Kelly sitting in that room. I, just, <laughs> I, I look at my son right now and I can picture you and you had that vision and what a moment that must have been. I rewatched it again last night, I've been watching it all week actually, and just knowing a bit more now about your backstory and what you've gone through to get there made it really emotional. And for everyone listening, you must go and rewatch it. It is this joyful, joyful moment of we're listening to Kelly now and you can now watch it in a sort of different perspective. Mm-hmm. And we're just so proud of you. You know, I'm just, yeah, I'm just, I'm feeling like I want to cry this whole podcast. I'm going to try. <laughs> Normally it's at the end, but you know, um, but also you were 34. So mm. you were 34. So, so frigging young, but not when it comes to athletics. And yeah. you were, you were beating the top runners in the world at 34 and you were living proof that we must just never give up on our dreams. And Wilfred Emmanuel Jones uh, made me really laugh at the congregation because he said, we must start our dreams young as it takes so bloody long for them to come (laughs) true. true. (laughs) But you did. What kept you going, kept you determined? You know, what ultimately would you put it down to? Was it self-belief? Because you were battling that you know, the whole time. I think there's self-belief and I think there is an, you know, if you find, you mentioned the diamond, if you kind of really feel who you and what you want to be, passion becomes big driver, you know, having passion about something, you've got to enjoy it, firstly, let's face it, but you also got to have an understanding that you're good at it and I think people underestimate the fact that they're good at different things, they might not have identified exactly, but if you're starting a business, you've probably got passion for it, you kind of like got a driver somewhere for yeah. it and it's the same as me, I just, be- I don't know, you know, it's when you diamond, talk about yourself, yeah. I just felt it, I just mm-hmm. believed I could be it and I look back now and I now believe in fate. I believe that maybe that journey was the destiny. Really, it's not about the winning the two gold medals. It's what I do now. I stand on stage in front of hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands of people trying to inspire and motivate them, tell them about the highs and the lows in the journey. But to say it shouldn't define yourself if you have a mental health problem or you suffer, it shouldn't stop success. So I feel like the, even though it's not easy (laughs) it was bloody hard I feel now I'm this side of everything and a lot older I can kind of think well maybe that was my destiny not just to win the two gold medals to be who I am to this day you know but you can only really realize that as life goes on life goes on and we can look back yeah and you can only only when you look back do you then think oh okay maybe that was my destiny you know yeah yeah. Uh, yeah I just think that um it's just part and parcel of what it was I could have given up I'd never be sitting with you here I'd never do the things that I did after my career because it gives me a platform to talk about what I'm most passionate Permission about to yeah do that. you know like you talk and you have some amazing business women and I look at myself now and I think I want to be 
amazing businesswomen like you. I really want to be, but sometimes I'm juggling with what is that? Because I've only known how to mm -hmm. just be me. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm passionate about so many things, but I haven't got an education. Mm. I don't mm. know loads of these things yet. In my head, mm. I think mm. I need, I want to, because the age I'm at now, I hate, talk, I hate aging. I hate talking about age. Anyone that says it's okay, a lion. Um, <laughs> you know, because I think in my head, I want to still be successful, yeah. you know, and it does take years. Yeah. But in my head, like my mum died at 64. What if you yeah. don't know? I, I want to know it now. You know, I'm always desperate to know all the little all bits the that bits. make my next venture successful. So I look at other people as strength. You know, I come to your congregation. I'm like, yeah, give me that little fire in the belly. You know, people start from somewhere. You know, I've done bit. I've started a charity, which has gone on 12 years. I've started a, you know, sitting on the floor in somebody's office with my laptop thinking, right, I want to do a charity for disadvantaged young people and areas of deprivation. I'm going to use sports people as their role models. 12 years later, helped 350,000 young people transition, I think 750 sports people into new careers. But that was just my drive and passion to do it. It's run now by other people, you know. I chaired a board for eight years. I didn't know how to bloody chair a board. I just had the passion and knew what I wanted to, to happen to and brought that. people in to do their job. And but so do you think business, that's the key? Do you think yeah. that's the key when, so if you were going to look at advice for people starting their businesses or mm. starting that journey of who they are or what they're doing, I think what we could basically both agree with is that passion, that energy that got yeah. you over the line, you know, that, that was it. And and I can tell you right now, you're going to be very successful moving forward I'm too. I'm coming to speak to you. Yeah, well, we're going to... We, I, <laughs> I, I, I literally am so honoured that you could even say that about <laughs> me. But you, you'd realised your dreams, hadn't you? You were yeah. on this amazing high. You were the first Briton in over 80 years to win a double gold in the 800 and the 1500 metres. And something very few people would have ever experienced. Mm. What was life like after this? So mm. did you retire after the win? Was that your conscious decision to say, okay, I'm now moving direction? No, I had no idea what I was going to do. I felt like if I'd stopped, I would lose my identity. Any yeah. All my purpose in life was that driver, my dreams. You know, I achieved both my dreams since 14. I had no idea who I was or what I was ever going to do with it. I mean, it was that immediate euphoria of, you know, kind of on that platform and things happening and days, but I knew how to run, you know. It's just like everyone was saying, oh, you're going to retire. And I was like, why? I had no idea. So I carried on for another year. I got injured again. And I actually only retired because of a life thing. It was, uh, I was speaking to a businessman in, um, uh, in Ireland and... I was saying to him, he was saying, oh, maybe you could do this. And I was so desperate to learn something else because I didn't know anything else that I was kind of brought into the fact that, oh, maybe it'd help me, teach me. Anyway, just really quick story. We when I had lunch. He'd fallen over uh, at a tennis match, wasn't feeling well. I flew back to my holding camp, flew back to South Africa where I was living, thinking I was just going through the same cycle of training and going back. And I got a call when I landed the next day from my physio saying, oh, my gosh, Tim's got some bad news. He's been told he's uh, only got three weeks to live. Uh, this is the businessman that was really powerful in Ireland, wanted to help me. And he's got told he had three weeks to live. He died three weeks later. I called my agent. I said, I'm retiring. Why am I fighting to still keep pushing to be good at what I've got my dream you know mm. I've got my two gold medals it could never mm. be better than that I was at 35 mm. by then why mm. so I just made that decision that was probably good because it was just a okay done rip off the done. poster I was done. ready done 
Before that, I couldn't have. I would have always thought, well, maybe I should, you know, it's questions. So it was nice to have that almost definitive no. But I had no idea who I was then because mm. I didn't know what I was getting up for each day. I was doing things for other people, opening shops, going to places. Whilst it was all great, didn't almost make me feel who I was. You know, I was doing things always for other people. I was doing a lot of charity work, which i always done, as I said. That was lovely. I felt brilliant and I still do. But it's taken a long, long, long time. You know, I, after having such a breakdown, you don't get over it. You start to, let's say, learn how to deal with it. I got bad depression again. I was going through cycles of things. I'm not understanding who I was, what my purpose in life was. And sometimes people need feel like they have a purpose. And I always felt like I needed a purpose in life from early age. Yeah. Well, that's so what I was had, lost. isn't it? Yeah, that's I what, had the purpose. That was all my hidden that's bit. What, that, that's what, <laughs> that was it was. And again, I cannot stress enough I, that I can't imagine being in, in your shoes, but there's a similar feeling in the business world. Mm. Once you have sold a business or exited your business, it, mm. it should be this greatest high, the moment you realise your dreams, that goal you've been working for so long completed, then comes the greatest low. And I mean like a crater low, mm -hmm. as suddenly you've lost the purpose. Um, Sahar Hashimi, who founded Coffee Republic, said at the congregation when she sold her shares in her business, she said, you just cannot prepare for the low that she felt. And she told the story of crying on her mum. They were going off on a plane and they were yeah. going to go and celebrate. And she said she didn't just cry. I mean, she had a, basically, she broke mm -hmm. in the floor of the airport because it was the biggest low that she'd ever felt. Mm. And so from joining those dots of all those wonderfully inspirational people I've been lucky enough to interview it's what keeps them going is having that happiness and fulfillment. But as an athlete, your diamond, you're like, right, I've need to find an entire new diamond in a way, <laughs> in yeah. a sense. I suppose it's like starting a new business. You mm. started your incredible foundation, like you said, the Dame Kelly Holmes Trust. Mm. Sometimes we create things, don't we, as a sort of life raft. Mm. Do you think that that was a bit of a life raft? Because that was just in that transition time, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that. I'd also started a mentoring education program in 2004 before I won my two golds, thinking, oh, how could I, you know, help other young people succeed in life and find their identity? And it was almost like that, thinking, well, if I don't win my two gold medals, I've still got something to give. But it's almost like, starting something that I could hold on to because I was thinking well I'm going to retire at some stage but I never thought one second past like winning that I would retire it's almost like a safety net of starting things just to have something to go for that started for that I carried on for 10 years charity started 2008 still going I've almost like just gone in with something passionate about it definitely but gone in as a safety net of having my mind focused on something yes. I think I've got, and that's been what I have been doing for the last, you know, I've retired, what, 14 years ago now. And I still believe that I've only really starting to feel my own purpose. And again, maybe, yeah, only this late on. People think, you know, just because you've won two gold medals, it puts you up on the pedestal. But you have to remember that when I won, media was TV, radio and press. Now social media's come. You know, you almost feel like on the bottom of the point where people have jumped on that bandwagon. And you look and you think, OK, who remembers me? Well, I've got to reinvent myself again for people to remind themselves that I'm still here and what I did. It's so weird. Yeah, you know, gosh. you're kind of fighting and then... I get to a point where I'm like, yeah, but what am I actually good at? You know, I know what I've done. 
and I know what I can mm -hmm. start and I know my mm -hmm. passion mm -hmm. and I know that when I do my motivational speaking that's become my thing your profession but I still have this burning desire to go I I love the fact that when you can say to someone this is where I started this is where I end and that's the inspiration to say to someone look I want to do that let's say in the business world where I can go I had no idea I just put I feel like it's I, throw, I always talk about a puzzle. I've actually got that, that with this missing piece of puzzle in my chest because I feel like you throw up a puzzle, it all lands, some bits go together and you've got those missing pieces. And I feel sometimes like my life's got those bit of missing pieces because I feel like I can still be better at something else yeah. now. I don't want to stop. But you, but you sound like, you know, this is, this is why you're going to be successful because <laughs> many people right yeah. now go, I am now done. There's no more missing frigging pieces. <laughs> I'm tired. But you have got that desire and that burn for something else yeah. and what's something that's really inspirational about you is your honesty in talking about your experiences with mental health and I know that you're saying what you're saying is true that you know at the time that you were going through this suffering a nervous breakdown is it is no one spoke about it you know no one spoke about it and I'm so sure how difficult that was you were a champion yet in that bathroom you are not a champion to yourself. And it is just utterly inspirational. And I can see that this brings a real strong sense of purpose to you now too. Like mm. not maybe the purpose that we're talking about in that business sense, but just as a as Kelly yourself, helping others that are mm. suffering from mental illness. Yeah. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I think it's about sharing and stopping the stigmatism but also humanizing things again we live in a world that especially in the corporate sector like I speak to people go to work and expected to kind of do their job and things but we're all human at the end of the day we shut our door at home and people think that that's a divide it's not a divide you're still that person living your life and it's important for me to get the message out that even though I'm successful publicly and people have seen that you know People used to say, oh, you're superhuman. No, I'm not superhuman. I had the talent. I didn't give up on it. I succeeded. It was hell on some bits. It was brilliant on others. But actually, if you normalize conversation, then we can start to stop that stigmatism. I wrote about everything that had gone on in my autobiography in 2005. I didn't tell anyone. Didn't tell my family. Didn't tell my friends. Didn't tell anyone because I thought, well, well, how do I do it? Or if I do it in a book, <laughs> then this is out there, you yeah. know? But you know, when I, when I do my talks, I show my Olympic wins and then I go, how many remember that? All put their hand up. How many remember the headlines in the newspaper when I said about self-harming? Nah, don't remember that. Because it was like chip paper, you know, it's kind of like said, done, oh, let's just mask that. We don't talk about it and forget. And I said, but in 2017, I started to re-talk about it. I went on Loose Women and it was kind of like, they were going, oh, and I said, no, no, no. The difference is you're listening. People are listening now. So yeah. it's my, I feel partly what maybe the journey <laughs> is being that if I'm somebody that can help do that, you know, thought leadership, changing people's opinions and making this just real, you know, I can't pretend that it wasn't me. It was me, but it doesn't define who I am. It doesn't stop me being driven, mm -hmm. successful. So I think it's important that we just, open it out there as a conversation because let's face it most people that have tried to be good at something tried to strive to be good at something have struggled somewhere you know it's never easy is it let's face yeah, it and life's have. not easy whatever it is whether that's emotional whether that's relationship whether that's you know 
or not getting the promotion. Life shit sometimes. We have to mm. go through it. It doesn't stop people still being good. But if we talk mm. about, if lots of people share that, yes. it'll make people feel so much better. Oh, thank God I'm not the only one. Yeah. You know, and that's so why right. I talk about it now. And it's important for me to do that. And I do feel maybe that was part of my destiny to be I one of the people so. that do it. I do. I, I completely <laughs> but, think so. You know, so it's just part and parcel of my life. It will be something that I'll always have to deal with. You understand it a little more. You know, I talk about, no one talks about bereavement. Yet when my mum died in 2017, it was the worst time of my life ever. You know, I cried every single day for three weeks till her, uh, her funeral. Didn't want to go out in case somebody says, how's your mum? She's dead. Sorry to hear about your mum? Didn't want to hear it because she's not there anymore. Well, can I have an autograph? Because I didn't know about it. It's like, I don't want to go out. I hated it. Hated everyone. Hated everything. But then I realised, you know, I ended up cutting myself at that point she died. And I was like, that is not the solution. What happened to me of talking about things is knowing now that acts and triggers, you have yes. to understand your own, yeah. and knowing and heartbreak is completely different to depression and knowing where those two lines meet. And that's given me strength to mm. put all these things into mm. place and to build on that for Gosh. when I do my talks. But it's just part of life, isn't it? It is, but, but you, you take it like it's part of life. The way you've just described it and everyone listening I've never heard anyone talk that way. And mm. it's exactly that. I think about the things I hide, you know, mm. because I'm a successful businesswoman, mm. you know, and the things that, as you say, goes on behind the closed doors. And yeah. we, we have to have the courage to talk about things yeah. more, what we feel comfortable, yeah. you know. Feel, but what you're doing is giving people permission. You yeah. are, because you are that person we look up to. So mm. you are giving us permission or people suffering from mental health or people who feel like they're running their business but can't because they're depressed. Well, actually your story has shown you can be both, You right? can you be can, both, yeah. You can do the bo both things. Tell me, we're going to have our meeting. We're yes. going to, um, I have a cake shop, so maybe you're going to have to have a Let's little bit of cake. Let's go there, okay? please, yes. Um, your entrepreneurial speaking and your, your your motivational speaking is is part of you, but you've got this missing piece, this entrepreneurial mm -hmm. streak in you. It's strong, by the yeah. way. It's like a force of nature <laughs> right in front of me. What do you think it's going to hold? You don't know exactly what it is, but no. what, what when you look at your future, what, what, what do you think that that purpose is going to be? Um... Well, there's one more I want to come and speak to you, <laughs> but I think, um, and I might be going off on the wrong thing and sometimes that's okay. But of I, course it is. I yeah. think that my brand encompasses kind of like, you know, obviously mindset, motivation, mental health, fitness, nutrition, and mindful thinking. So there's those five elements that kind of make the wider people. And I've started a couple of things that I think mm, might go somewhere like I started one called military emotion which is actually a, a new fitness concept but because I'm using the values of military and, and sport it's almost like well there's a leadership part in that mm -hmm. and there's products that can come mm -hmm. off of it mm -hmm. and then there's a dance routine that can be put into gyms and things it's mm -hmm. almost like I want this thing to go off in different tangents because yeah. I don't want it just what yeah. I'll be bored doing thinking of one thing to be honest but could it be a bigger identity that co covers all the things I'm doing I don't know it's just in my head and my thought process that I think I could build on those different elements. You know, sometimes I think like other people, am I going up barking up the wrong tree? Should I change completely? So I get a completely different passion, but then I go like other people, am I too old to start something brand new? Yeah. And do I yeah. just keep with the passion? Yeah. Because that's yeah. the driver yeah. and half of me yeah. thinks, yeah, stick with yeah. that, but yeah. build it. I just want to be somebody 
I think, in the business world that can go, yeah, and I know I've got a platform, but it doesn't always help because no, you still yeah. get barriers and people think, you know, I know. I want to be able to, in five years, to stand on stage and go, you know what, I had this thing. Look, this is a successful yeah. business now because of the driver, the passion, putting yeah. the tools that I've yeah. had in my life You want together. to do another race. Yeah, yeah, yeah I race. do. Yeah. And I'm not With afraid to say it. And I think some people are afraid to say they want to be successful. I don't feel like I've actually reached my full potential. And that's honest truth. I don't think you have either. I feel I... like I've got something else in me well i cannot wait to have that piece of cake because this is like my when i when i have like what do you do as a pastime i'm like i i help people be that thing and so i cannot wait just before we come to the end of this podcast i wanted to just touch on that um what some people might not know is that you live on a beautiful farm where you train but you look after six alpacas (laughs) right I mean, they're so cute. You have to follow Kelly on Instagram. They're the cutest things ever. Are you living this, like, good life? Yes, we're talking about business, but just on a personal front. <laughs> no, it's so random. Yeah, I have six alpacas. I mean, oh, God. How do you have six alpacas? Do, okay. you, do, you, do you want to get a dog? Uh, well, I had two dogs, but they passed away when they were 13 and 14 years ago. Oh, do you know what? I'd really tell you this story very quickly because obviously it's something very strange in my life. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a private person generally in my life, but there was sort of that connection where I thought, oh, this is so weird that I'll start sharing it because they come in from my... I've got a field at the front of my house. They come in and I spray them and wash them and they're just sort of there in your face and they're just like, these are weird things that are kind of laying and, you know, put their bum up when they want to squirt and all of that. And it was because... <laughs> Okay, so I won my two golds. I was renting my house, living in South Africa, came back, uh, went off to train to compete, went to the Olympic Games, came back, two gold medals. I had to stay with my mum in a little council house, in a little bedroom, all my boxes. I think, I can't, I can't deal with this. You know, it's like that. Made friends with this guy at a hotel, lived in his hotel for four years, and uh, four, years, four months, became best friends. Anyway, my mum was on a mission to find me a house. So she went around, being the nosy neighbour that she was, heard that this couple were uh, divorcing, went knocking on this big house, like, you know, it's got a bit of land in the middle of nowhere. Cut a long story short. Over the few months, this woman obviously decided she was going to sell this place, hadn't even seen it. My mum said, right, go to this place. I thought, how am I going to afford this freaking place? I had no idea. Sold the house that I'd rented out and just thought, I've got to work my ass off, basically. <laughs> you know, it was that. Anyway, had this field at the front. When I came back a year later, this local garage said, would you like a ride on mower? So I was like, oh, yeah, brilliant. Ride on mower. Go around there. You know, all those little ride on mower. So I got on this ride on mower, music on. And I thought, oh, God, this is two hours of my life, like, wasted. Instead of thinking, this is me time, I'm yeah. thinking, I've got too much to do, you know? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, went for this run. Saw these weird things looking over this farmer's gate and I went what are they and he went first of all he said they're llamas they're really tall he said oh have a look at these and then these little fluffy things come out and he said I went what are they and he said alpacas I said what do they do he said eat grass and eat a hedge I went I want them <laughs> I was like oh wait there you go that's the answer to everything so I got these two I thought they'd be eaten away uh-uh aloof they were in the corner didn't even see them Someone says, no, they're in packs. You've got to get more. So I went off to get two more, ended up with four. My mum said, get four. Look at them, how cute. So I ended up with six alpacas. <laughs> and that's the story. To mow your lawn. Just to mow my lawn. That was it. <laughs> Ten 
years later. I, I still, still got, got You still got them. Oh, my <laughs> God. I love so, that. Yeah, so I Instagram. love that. <laughs> so just to, towards the end of the mm-hmm. interview, and I use the analogy that running your own small business, mm. um, which you do, is like running, um, running, I've got running on the brain. It's like being on this epic roller coaster. So what would you say in this part of your world, you know, yeah. post um, the athletic side has been one of your biggest lows whilst whilst running this this part of your life? I suppose the biggest lows, I mean, obviously you could say like the mental health problems that you deal with, but almost just that always searching for an identity sometimes just puts you down and that's why you get down. Mm. You know, as much as I could say a lot of things were impacted because of my injuries and that striving and whatever, mm. I think a lot of it also, which I probably haven't really said, is that kind of loss of not really knowing who I am. Mm. You know, I, I, I suppose I hid between behind my talent. I used mm-hmm. that as my happiness, mm-hmm. even though there's sadness, you know. Mm. But now in this part of my life, I always still feel like I'm sort of not living who maybe I could be or should be. So it's mm. that loss of identity thing is almost my You know lows. what's coming across strong is you almost feel like an imposter in your life at the moment. Yeah. You've got <laughs> yeah. to stop that because you're <laughs> one of the most glorious human beings I've ever had the privilege of meeting. Oh, and sweet. yes, you've got all of those foundations of all these things you've achieved, mm. but they're all the building blocks you've got. You don't have yeah. to start again or anything. It's yeah. just we're going to continue it. You know, you're not an imposter. Yeah. You are super crazily amazing and we've just got to find what the next block is to add haven't we we're not starting again or anything like that no but I think that you know I think it's important that people realize that anyone will go through these sort of things Mm. you know I might have achieved what I have and I'm proud Mm. of that I mean don't get me wrong and Mm. I'll stand up on that stage and I will literally be the best and strongest version of myself but I'll be very honest and open as well Mm. I want to be successful and I hope people Mm. listening to this you have tears Good, because actually you want it more. I could, yeah. I could cry right yeah. now thinking yeah. how much I want to be something else. Yeah. But just because I want it so bad. And that's mm. what you should have that feeling. It shouldn't be something you hide or you kind of think, oh, I shouldn't be feeling like this because I'm not successful. I always think that when I feel like this is because I know I want something else. And that should be a power as well. I think you've got a premonition maybe that you're going to get it, it's going to happen. <laughs> and converse to your greatest high in this part of your journey. Well, of course, winning my Olympic gold medal yeah. in the 1500 metres is definitely the biggest high that I've ever had because it was literally a dream, a fight, a struggle, but a realisation that it can come true if you just believe in your dreams. You know, I never, nothing will ever replicate that feeling and that's okay. I just on the other side, want to replicate another high feeling. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. that, was, that was the highest point of my whole life. But I still believe I've got another one to come. And someone that you has inspired you that you think possibly I could interview for this podcast? Oh, gosh, there's so many people, isn't there? Um, I kind of, you know, one of my little hobbies is like interior design once. And I, I really like Kelly Hoppin as interior designer, you know, started when she was 16 and you know, 16 and, you know, she's just like ballsy. I look at her and I think, God, look at everything you've bloody done, like business-wise. Yeah. Think, oh, if only I, I need like, a few yeah. more years, you know, and just because, you know, she knows I talk about that. And it could be, there's lo- so many people I could say, but just from a hobby point of view. Yeah, I turning love, that hobby turning into that a hobby career. Turning that hobby into a massive brand under her name I mean how 
Incredible. Bloody good is that. Incredible. Thank you, Kelly. What a career highlight today has been. As I said, I've nearly been in tears this entire interview because it's the driving force, this thing I feel off you. It's just quite uh, spectacular. You were born with so few chances available to you, but you worked your butt off and you won those two gold medals. You became a dame, you became a colonel, but you've overcome such internal struggles and you are truly inspirational and everyone I know right now listening just want to they're just giving you a round of applause just imagine that and we're just so proud of you and I it would be my honor to help you find your next diamond and and help you shine that but at this moment of this podcast where I hand over to you you said it's glad I'm not reading it because there's scribbles (laughs) on the paper but I was wondering if you would do us the honor of reading your letter to your younger self Okay, I will do. And I'm sorry if it doesn't make sense. I'm not that great at writing still. However, I do my best. And, you know, when I was asked to write his letter, I was thinking, do you say me back then? You? So forgive me if there's anything I didn't say well, but I've just written it how I would if I was saying this. I put, hi, Kelly. Firstly, I'd like to say well done and I'm proud of you. I know growing up has been a bit of a challenge for you. Remember in the nights you cried yourself to sleep because your mum had to leave you in a care home but hanging on to those cuddly toys for comfort. Growing up with the realisation that you were different than others at school. The day one of the girls in primary school asked you why you had a different coloured skin to your mum and, and dad and first brother. But look how you handled it when you were proud to be the sugar in the plum 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 when dancing in the middle of Brony M Brown Girl in the Ring song. I want to say well done for handling any differences in a mature and grown-up way when you turned around and said, yes, but being different makes me unique and standing out amongst the crowd. Well done for committing to something you loved. You probably could have listened more at school and not spent as much time outside the classroom because it would be helping you right now. However, you were given this amazing talent to run and boy, did you run. There are not many young people who have followed their dreams and believed in them as much as you do and that's amazing itself but now you are 17 and in the army life ahead is going to be tougher than ever before a roller coaster ride of emotions you're going to have to fight in all parts of your life fight to acceptance prove yourself and prove that you're as good as anyone else take rejection but have the will to stand up to what you believe in Look, I'm not going to bullshit you. Your identity will be questioned even more than before, not just your colour. People will challenge you, but stick to your values of being polite, be the strongest version of yourself so that you can compete against the guys in the army and the units, gain respect, and you will have that and you will do just fine. And it will go into your next career. But the biggest test is going to be proving yourself how much you really want your dream of becoming an Olympic champion. I don't want to tell you everything that lays ahead through fear of you giving up. But I'm telling you never to give up. The journey ahead is set to test you and test you at will. If I was to tell you how successful you're going to be with your running, you would be amazed by now. But I want you to learn everything, how to cope, how to believe in yourself. The tears will turn into tears of joy one day. Also understanding you are the power to your success. Your brand is going to be your strongest business asset, but you want to know how to do that. And you need to know that you need to continue to believe in it. If I could share something with you back then, it would be this. Strong enough to stand alone, smart enough to know when you need help and brave enough to ask for it. One day you will know how important this is to share this. Is that right? So, so much. (laughs) You know, it's just, 
You're so articulate. <laughs> You just, and I just can't, for anyone who's not here, everyone who's not here, they don't understand who I'm looking at. It's just this incredible human being, so humble, and yet you are just magnificent. And um, I just can't wait, if you've asked my help, to give you that help. And I just, I look forward to getting to know you even more. Bless you. Thank Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode with Kelly, I'd love to suggest listening to my conversation with Jay Blades that I alluded to earlier. You can find any of my past episodes by searching Conversations of Inspiration wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed listening, if it's helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.